Welcome to the Ham and High podcast. In this episode, Michael Boniface chats with the amazing composer, singer, songwriter and cellist Ayana Witter-Johnson. Ayana lives in Hornsey and this year released an EP, Rise Up, as a celebration of her Jamaican heritage. She talks about the music she loves, her path to success and the important roles her school and teachers played. Here's Ayana Witter-Johnson. Ayana, welcome to the Ham and High podcast. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, darling. It's wonderful to be here. I was wondering if we can start sort of right at the beginning for you and how you got into music. Yeah, going way back, I I grew up in a very um, musical household in the sense that my parents listened to a lot of music, a lot of 80s soul um, a lot of old school soul, <laughs> R&B, <laughs> reggae, um, and I started piano lessons around age three and a half, four. Um, I started learning classical piano all through primary school, picking up the recorder along the way, and then later the cello in the early years of secondary school. And singing, you know, just generally along with the radio and to various records in between all of that. So it was kind of a childhood filled with different types of music and a different um, type of engagement in terms of being an instrumentalist as well as being a fan. And was it something that you naturally just clicked with or was it something that you kind of had to be forced into? How was it for you? Yeah, actually, it's funny you say that. Initially, I would have said it's something that I always had an aptitude for. But when I was sort of nine, I wanted to give up piano. I didn't want to practice. And (laughs) I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. My mom said, well, you are going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep paying and I want you to keep playing. So that was the end of that discussion. And thank goodness she didn't give up on me because, yeah, here we are. Of course, of course. And growing up, I mean, who were your musical inspirations? Who did you look to? What were you listening to at home? Um, Stevie Wonder, Anita Baker, TLC, uh, Vivaldi, Debussy, yeah, Nina Simone, lots of people, Luther Vandross. And, and I suppose how, any of those in particular, have they sort of helped shape your music and to what you're doing now? I would say everyone, um, I was, any anything I've ever listened to really has found itself um, somewhere in my subconscious. And because my music is so eclectic, I feel that they've all, you know, um, influenced me in a way. I guess as a songwriter, I I try not to set out to limit myself in a particular genre. I listen to what the story wants and might need. And then I guess I call upon everything I've been aware of and everything that kind of makes me, um, that resonates with me on a core level. And luckily, lots of music has done that for me, be it Steely Dan or... Aretha Franklin, whoever, um, if the song and the performance resonates with me, it sort of transcends uh, the style and the genre. So all sure. of those artists have fed in to my journey. Nice. And I mean, you're a singer, you're a songwriter, you're a cellist, you're a composer, producer, obviously loads going on there. Um, 
I'm interested in someone who has no idea how to play the cello, doesn't have a kind of background in cello, as I'm sure many of our listeners might be the same as well. What, what's unique about the instrument? It's the best. Um, <laughs> the cello can do so many things. Obviously, you can play it with a bow and create a really lyrical, um, beautiful, quite deeply resonant, moving texture. You can pluck it with your fingertips and create a more percussive sound. I tap it and actually drum it on the back of the wood, which is a very percussive sound. <laughs> And then different parts of the cello, you can tap with different things. Um, the scroll, the end pin, parts of the fingerboard, the bridge. There are loads of little, gently, of course, you don't want to <laughs> damage the instrument, but you can experiment with lots of different textures. I also turn it on its side and strum it, play it as a guitar and sometimes as a bass. So yeah, there's a lot that the cello can do and you can strum chords and bow chords to a degree. And it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty special in that way. I've listened to your music and you, dare I say, make the cello cool. And I don't mean to say, I hope that's not an insult to the cello itself, but you know, as an instrument, which maybe I presumed growing up wasn't kind of as accessible to as many people listening to you play it it sounds cool how do you make the cello cool <laughs> it's all to do with the songs I mean when I started playing and singing um, when I was studying music I got a gig at a local Caribbean restaurant and I was playing and singing in the back it was just me and I like rhythm I like groove and I I didn't get enough, I wasn't playing with a drummer, so I needed to create that for myself, which is where the sort of percussive dynamic element came in, finding my voice um, with the cello as an accompanying instrument. So from that and sort of covering pop songs, I guess I was creating a sound world that was taking contemporary language, but arranging it for, for this setup. So that's the root of the the sound world really and i mean seeing youngsters growing up is it is it an instrument that you like to see more people play i mean what what could it give and i suppose how can it be made more accessible to, to more people the cello yeah i mean i haven't been at school for a long time so i don't know what the situation is <laughs> in schools these days but even the journey to me getting access to a cello it was really through the kindness the school governor who loaned me Ruben, the cello I have, um, all through school because my music teacher said I was doing really well and that my piano skills were really high and you know we have a young student here who's about to start a new instrument and she's progressing really quickly. Um, that kindness, that encouragement from the teacher meant that I could get access to a really good instrument which if it were in a different area or a different school, or there wasn't a governor who happened to have a cello lying around, it was all very um, serendipitous in that way. So schools need um, investment in terms of instruments. They need the funds to be able to purchase decent instruments and not just purchase them, but look after them and maintain them. Cause it's, you know, it's not overly costly, but cellos do need maintenance. They do need to see a cello doctor. <laughs> they do need a cello doctor. <laughs> who's, the, who's the cello doctor <laughs> there's a wonderful shop um in stoke newington off church street called bridgewood and knightser they are 
amazing and I highly recommend them to anyone um, locally. So yes. And so growing up, I mean, obviously being highly skilled and it being in the family and kind of in your roots music, how did you take it from something that you obviously really enjoyed and were very skilled at into a career? Yeah, that's a great question. When I started at music college at Trinity Laban, I I didn't uh, imagine doing music as a full-time uh, profession. I just liked it and I wanted to be somewhere where I could do more of it. But it was during those years and the teachers I had and the people I met that I began to discover the world of creative musicians and artists and composers and that's where um, the sense that I could live life as a creative person came from meeting people who were doing that. Other than that, I guess before that, if if you weren't kind of really famous soloist or Madonna or somebody, there, there wasn't like much of a middle ground in my imagination. I think it was very different now possibly, but at the time um, I, I networked you know, organically, I made friends, I made friends with players, I applied for competitions, I applied for opportunities for workshops, I basically got myself out there engaging in various community projects, um, projects happening across London, I was quite proactive and interactive, going to jam sessions, all of that stuff. And eventually, you know, if you turn up on time to enough <laughs> rehearsals, people will want to book you for something. And I found myself being booked as a cellist in this band or that band or doing backing vocals for this or that person, eventually opening up concerts for this or that organization or this festival. And it sort of to, started to build from there before I got my first manager. Were there any breakthrough moments or people who you point to now who were key in turning um, you into a career musician? I love this interview. These questions are great. <laughs> um, yeah, there have been a few key people. So my piano teacher, David Smith, growing up, I've had several piano teachers, but he was my longest standing one. Um, he lived in Crouch End and uh, he really invested a lot of time in me as as a young person and extending my lessons to one and a half times as long and all of this kind of thing so david um for his belief in me and his encouragement to go for things and opportunities and my cello teacher sue southerly who plays for the lpo the london philharmonic orchestra she has also been a real inspiration and grounding force so both of those two people gave me the confidence to to broaden my horizons musically. But I would say um, the career development, going to Trinity Laban was really the beginning of my career as a musician, networking, meeting people, getting key gigs. And I think when I went to America to study, when I really realized I wanted to be a performing artist full time was I took part in Amateur Night Live at the Apollo Theatre in Harlem and won all the rounds that you can win in order to win the Super Top, Super Top Dog Champion prize. So after I won that prize and I took that money and decided I should record myself and record an EP, my first EP truthfully, I think at that point I realised this is definitely something 
that I potentially have a good chance of making a career in. You've just released your new EP, um, Rise Up. Do you mind telling me a bit about that and what it's all about? Yes. So Rise Up is a celebration of my Jamaican culture and heritage. It's an anthem for all of us to to remember where where we are, who we are, all the gifts we have, and to really hold each other up in um, keeping our dreams alive. I wrote it a few years ago and performed it at the Jazz Cafe in an amazing live show that Akala was at. And he jumped on stage and luckily he decided to record that that rap for the for the recorded version but it's it was born out of a dance hall rhythm and i wanted to have like just a really upbeat song that you could kind of dance to and bop to but also feel inspired by so making sure that the message is really positive along with the music um and yeah for all for all the people that were like me growing up from a caribbean black household and all the challenges that you may have experienced living living um through that story and that journey i wanted to just celebrate our voices and feel inspired and you mentioned your jamaican heritage how important is identity to you through your music i think it's hugely important because music is a wonderful way for us to just learn about each other it's a lovely way to celebrate different cultures and just to enjoy the diversity of life i think it's a brilliant way to do that and so I'm always keen to, it's as fascinating for me to discover more about my history through music as it is to share it with the audience. So I take it as an opportunity to learn, to look back, to learn about new artists, to see how that can inspire me and then take that forward. The second song actually on the EP, Declaration of Rights, is a cover by a wonderful roots reggae Jamaican group called the Abyssinians. And it was released in the mid 70s um, Declaration of Rights. And I've covered it with another Jamaican UK um, singer songwriter, Cleveland Watkiss. And we just totally reinvent this classic in, in a really contemporary way, which is wonderful. Akala is someone that's done a huge amount of work in Camden and in terms of music and widening access to music. What, what was it like working with him on the EP? Amazing. We've worked together on a few things. I'm on a couple of tracks on some of his albums. Um, he's on this one of mine. His work with the Hip Hop Shakespeare company that he founded, um, they've commissioned me to write some songs for that as well. So it's been a brilliant kind of back and forth, pitching and catching <laughs> type relationship. And he's incredible, as as you know. And someone that I learned a lot from just being in a studio environment. He's really, really well read and recommends excellent books and is quite an inspiring person. What kind of books is he recommending? Cultural books about black history. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, uh, I feel really, really um, privileged to have been able to record at his studio. A lot of my album Roadrunner was recorded at his studio in London so it's been great. And what's it been like being a musician in this pandemic? We've seen it kind of cut across literally every single sector of society but yeah how's it been as a musician to all of this? It's been really humbling and 
it has really shown me how incredibly important music is um, to everyone in society beyond musicians just audiences music makers everyone involved at all levels of the music industry it's been a shock and and a challenge but i'm so impressed with how creative and productive i think the arts have been as a whole during this lockdown um orchestras doing live streams and concerts and artists from their bedrooms collaborating with other artists putting together you know video performances it's been really really heartwarming to see everyone just keep making art the best way they can so i yeah i think at this stage i would say there's a sense of thriving and a sense of real excitement and anticipation for being back in the room with audiences soon and in the meantime the idea of um, doing the live streams and pre-records is really kind of um, sort of standard now. So there are a lot of festivals that are back on the map this year that, you know, wouldn't have been able to do it last year. So it's it's super encouraging. And I think we'll be in a stronger position ultimately after this. Thanks so much to Ayana for speaking to us. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe, leave a review and we'll be back soon.